Right now, though, it's time to go for a ride with my pals, Axe and Smash of Demolition. Let's get to it. Ding, ding, ding. In fact, uh, we're heading out of Chicago, but we should be heading down to Rush Street in Chicago. Yes, you should be, and I wish I was there with you. All right, folks. All my listeners here on Primetime with Sean Mooney, buckle up, because this is going to be a very unique podcast. I can guarantee you that right now, before we have even said a word with our guests, they are on the road somewhere just outside of Chicago. They happen to be one of the most popular tag teams ever in professional wrestling, and that uh, certainly includes the WWF slash WWE Joining me right now, they are in a car heading to a show that is going to be taking place very soon, are Barry Darso and Bill Eady of Demolition. They are Axe and Smash. And uh, Barry, I think you have the phone right now, but uh, give me a little uh, lay of the land. What in the heck is going on right now? Right now, we're dead stop in a traffic jam. (laughs) We're trying to get to the town, but you know how Chicago is. We just flew in. I flew in from Minneapolis, and Bill just flew in from Atlanta. And uh, it was Southwest Airlines, and there's not a whole lot of room in those seats. But uh, but we're happy to be here. And uh, our driver is one of our very good friends, Mitch, who's a wrestler. In fact, when we get to the show, he's wrestling, and Axe and Smash are going to go out to the ring with him and uh, hope that uh, nobody tries to cheat because we're going to stop him. No, and you always have. Uh, what What is the show? Tell me what where you're headed. What is the show that you guys are going to be involved in? Um, we're in a show. It's uh, in Princeton, Illinois, and it's to raise money for a bunch of kids there. So it's every year the show goes on. So it's a it's a big crowd. That is awesome. Uh, yeah. Have you heard of the You heard of the show? I think Jerry Seinfeld has it's good comedians in cars having coffee. Uh, this is a little different version. I think we're going to call it uh, wrestlers in uh, cars uh, having a few beers. You guys, uh, is, is that happening right now, or is, is that uh, from days gone by? <laughs> I can't say that we're having beers in the car because it's illegal to drink and drive. Well, but, you're not driving. Uh, right, right. <laughs> yeah, well, here, Axe has something to say here. Okay. We obey those open container laws, too. We don't want to get in trouble. No, no, we wouldn't want that. But it's funny how things change. That's Bill. How are you? Good to good, welcome. <laughs> but we just saw uh, there must be some kind of an accident because we saw about 15 police cars going down the road. Uh, maybe they were chasing people with drinking beer. I don't know. No. Well, they weren't chasing your car. But uh, it's funny how uh, things have changed a bit. You know, I was thinking, since since we're starting in a car, uh, I want you guys to remember back, because uh, a lot of people don't really understand or appreciate uh, what you guys went through on the road up. And I mean that by getting to what the heights that you guys reached, a lot of that education took place on the road. Do you have some uh, very vivid memories of life traveling in cars with uh, several different personalities that we have come to know over the years, that uh, some stories that really stand out from uh, some of those road trips? Well, you know, Barry and I and Fuji traveled together for years 
and we used it as a uh, a skull session. You know, we'd have our match. Yeah. yeah. Fuji critique it, constructive criticism most of the time, <laughs> and and then we'd digest what he he said, and he'd say, delete this, add this, tweak this. So, you know, because we were interested in having the best match we could possibly have. If, if possible, the best match on the card. So all those hours back and forth on the highways to and from, you know, you can waste them or you can utilize them and, and learn from them. Yeah, and it really was a classroom. Uh, I've heard many, many uh, uh, superstars and also, you know, other professional uh, wrestling personalities say that that is where they learned because they'd get around these veterans and they were sponges and it, and it not only did they learn in the ring, but those sessions, considering the thousands and thousands of miles that you guys covered going from all these different towns really was a classroom in your education about uh, ring strategy, you know, the psychology involved. Uh, is that really stand out from those trips? Oh yeah. You know, uh, this is smash again, but, you know, and then back like, uh, you know, before we got in the WWF back then, when, when wrestling was real, you know, the baby faces and heels never got together at all to talk over the matches, but every yeah. once in a while you'd go to a town and you'd meet, you'd meet at the rest area and one of the baby faces would get in the car and ride with you for about 15, 20 miles. You'd kind of go over the matches and then you'd stop off at the next town and drop him off. And then the, your partner would get back into the car again, and then you'd know kind of what you were going to do that night. <laughs> I made sure nobody saw you do that, right? <laughs> if you were, you'd get fined or you'd get fired. or I mean, it was a bad thing if the heels and baby faces were together. You yeah, could I never mean, how, show up car. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how, how uh, serious was kayfabe back then? Because... Uh, not so much that, you know, of course, today it's a, it's a lot different. But, uh, you know, when people were out, they, they I mean, that was something you took very seriously. And, I mean, right into the locker room that that, uh, that, that existed back then. Well, yeah, the baby faces would be on one end of the building, the heels on the other end of the building. And at night after the matches were over, if everybody went to a certain bar, if a heel was in there and a baby face came in, the heels would run out of there. You, you weren't allowed in the same place as them. Right. That's just, that's just how it was. If you were caught, you'd be fired. That's how serious it was. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, until the, the big change happened, uh, that we saw, you know, in the, in the, uh, the nineties. Uh, but you know, guys, if you've, if you've listened to my podcast before, uh, one of the things that people really are fascinated about when they hear about some of these superstars that they, you know, were absolutely enthralled with during that period of time, which, you know, who can argue? The 80s and the 90s were certainly the golden era of professional wrestling. But they love to hear about the road that you traveled. And, and Barry, I know that, uh, you know, early on, and, and I, uh, I know you went to high school, Robbinsdale, and that was, uh, people still hear about who your classmates were, you know, but uh, I, I want to hear first of you. And then I want to hear from Bill, but tell us a little bit about that road, that early road that you traveled. Well, I tell you, um, a road that, uh, what really helped me out a lot. I, I was a, a power lifter from Minnesota. And when I got to Bill Watts's territory, yeah, you had to drive 
70 and 80 miles an hour to get to these towns. <laughs> and it, because if you were late, you got fined $50 or $75. But back then you only made that much money that night in the town. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, I met Bill, uh, superstar Billy Graham down there. And I picked his brain unbelievable about training and everything. I got to be really good friends with him. And then, you know, being with, uh, you know, the, the missing link back then, and then being with, you know, traveling with Ernie Ladd and really learning the business, being on the road is, was what really taught you how to act in the business and learn. It wasn't just the ring that you had to be good at. It was outside the ring and, you know, how you treated the, the veterans and, you know, you learned all that stuff. So the road was so important back then. Or now, I don't think it even matters. Yeah, but even even before that, I mean, what even got you interested? Uh, I know you you attended that that high school, and it was, uh, you know, uh, oh. for whatever reason, a lot of these guys ended up there because it was a hotbed, first of all, for professional wrestling. With, oh, you're uh, talking for Gagne, yeah. Yeah, you're talking way back. Well, oh yeah, you know, way Kurt, back. Yeah, Kurt Hennig was a very good friend of mine, and. Oh, yeah two years older than I was in school. So I, I grew up being around Kurt and, uh, you know, went to the same high school and everything. Yeah. And I was always telling him, Kurt, you got to get into the wrestling business. Cause I used to go down to the Minneapolis auditorium and I'd watch Larry, the ax Hennig and Harley race and the crusher and the bruiser. And, you know, I, I just loved watching it. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if one of my friends got into wrestling? <laughs> so, that's when Kurt went into Vern Gagne's camp, and we used to train together at a place called The Gym, and uh, that's where a lot of the athletes train. And then after Kurt got in, I was working at a bar with the Road Warriors and Rick Rude, and right. Eddie Shark, he was the bartender there, and he was the one who trained us in, and so we all got in the business at the same time. But it was being around Kurt and, you know, watching his dad wrestle and all that's kind of what really got the, you know, gave me the bug to get into the wrestling. But a lot of those guys, I mean, they had the lineage already. You know, like you mentioned Kurt, you know, and, and, uh, you know, a lot of these other guys that were at that high school at the same time, you know, uh, Richard rude, as he was known with the, with the two O's, but he was Rick rude as we eventually knew him. Brady Boone, uh, Tom yep. Zank, I think was there. John Nord. Uh, Nord. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And at the time in high school, I mean, did you guys look around and go, you know, uh, the, the professional wrestling is part of our, our blood or, you know, I mean, when you look at it, it, it must've been, you must've had an incredible amateur wrestling team. Did, were people involved on the team there or was it completely different than that? You know, that, uh, it was, you know, part of the, well, being part of the business. Yeah. Everybody played sports yeah. and in, uh, when we were in junior high, we had a health teacher. His name was Jerry McFarland. He was uh, Mr. Minnesota, and he was a weightlifter. And he uh, he made this gym at the junior high. It was the nicest gym probably in the country. And all of us started lifting weights, you know, in like eighth, eighth and ninth grade. And you know, by the time we got to high school, we all were, you know, built pretty good. So it was kind of like uh, pro wrestling's the way to go, or pro football, or pro something. But uh, yeah, that's kind of what started at Jerry McFarland back in junior high. Yeah. But did you even realize at that time at the at the high school that you you know you had these 
you know, incredible people around you that would have such an impact because, you know, you mentioned the road warriors, you know, Hawk and Animal, and you tell people they were all these guys you just mentioned were at the same high school. Well, uh, Hawk was actually at a high school that was close by ours. He, he went yeah. to uh, Henry High and Joe went to Irondale, which was another school, you know, in another place. But, you know, when we all got out of school, we all knew each other. <laughs> and but, bouncers but, together. So. Zinc and all us guys, yeah. we all went to the same school. Yeah. It, it, was, it was a rough crew when we went to a party uh, where somebody had a kegger, but I'll tell you. I'll bet. <laughs> I can't even you know, imagine what that must have been like. <laughs> well, I, 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 I've had the greatest life in the world, though. Yeah. But it, but it progressed from there, and it seemed like it was kind of your destiny with all those guys. Uh, you know, of course, Kurt uh, was part of his family anyway. But yeah. what was it that really got you caught up in it? Because you said you, you kind of fast-forwarded there and how, you know, uh, how you got into it as far as professionally. But what is it that really caught your got, – you know, got it going that you started even experimenting or stepping into the ring to see if you could do it? Once Kurt got into wrestling – it was the greatest thing in the world seeing one of your very good friends, best friends in that business. And then it was kind of like everybody said, well, shoot, if Kurt can do it, we can do it, you know? And then when Eddie Sharkey just happened to be there to train us, that's, that's really what it was. It was, uh, it was pretty, uh, pretty exciting back then, you know, being 20 years old and going to a wrestling camp and meeting all these wrestlers, you know? Yeah. Incredible. Now, what about yeah. Bill's? What about Bill's uh, road to at least getting to? Because uh, I'm always fascinated. Like, how did that happen? Because I know he was a great athlete. That where you well, make that transition to, you know, the world of professional wrestling. Well, I, I sort of backed into it. I'm I'm from a little town south of Pittsburgh. Yeah. And of course, Bruno San Martino was the legend in that area. Yeah. And it's sad that he just passed this week yeah and, and johnny valiant as well he was in in the territory at that time Pittsburgh. and uh, a good friend of mine and i we played football he was at penn state i was at west virginia mm -hmm. and his dad marion Klingensmith, was one of the state athletic commissioners in pennsylvania in charge of boxing and wrestling yeah so we came home in the summer after school and uh, Mr. Klingensmith asked me and his boy if we wanted to go to the Civic Arena and watch some wrestling matches. I said, well, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> My grandmother and grandfather were big wrestling fans. But I had never seen anything other than I've never seen a live show, just a television show. Yeah. So we, we went to the Civic Arena down there in Pittsburgh and our first day, we get to go back into the dress room because he's the commissioner. And he's going all this uh, licensing and stuff. And Guido Mongo, who eventually became my partner, my trainer and my partner, right. came up and asked us if we were uh, workers. And I said, no, sir, I haven't graduated from high school, from college yet. Jeez. So... Uh, I didn't know what that term was. Yeah. He sort of looked at me and, uh, you know, we were big guys, football players. 
Right. So uh, he said, were you interested in wrestling? And I said, I don't know much about it. And uh, a couple of days later, we're at his gym in his home. Both of us are training. And six weeks later, we're in the ring wrestling each other. So we both sort of backed into it. Yeah. And then uh, his partner, uh, Nikolai Volkov at the time, was uh, Pepo. They were getting ready to go overseas, and, and Nikolai got thrown out of the ring and got, got a ruptured spleen. Mm-hmm. So Guido calls me and he said, do you want to go to Japan? I said, I guess. <laughs> what the hell? Come to, the, come to my uh, gym. So I got there, and he shaved my head. He said, grow a mustache. You got four weeks for going to Japan. So I was in Japan for eight weeks and beating up people and didn't know what I was doing. And I was in main events wow. because, because Guido was there. But then, you know, that's how I got into it. You know, and, and uh, you, you you talk about uh, it, it seems like, you know, opportunity came along or, or things happen by uh, chance. But, you know, I, I've always been a believer that, you know, the door opens, you put the foot in, but once you get through, you got to be able to do it. And well, I, what do you think, what do you think separated you guys and both of you? Because, you know, the break started coming, but you had to back it up. You had to have some talent. What do you think separated you and, you know, allowed you to start to become among the elite, the elite that there are, that were out there at the time? Well, I, you know, we've talked about this a number of times, Barry, yeah. and, I, and the things that, that made us unique was we weren't, we had no egos other than for the team. You know, you got guys now that they don't know what to do. They're in a territory and they just throw them together. Both of them are going to be individual stars. Well, they may be, but right now they're a team and they should act like a team. But early on though, but early on though, Bill, and you were, you before you even uh, met up with Barry, that you had to climb that ladder along the way. And, it, you know, like I said, you, you get opportunities. Like you say, this uh, Nikolai got a ruptured spleen. But right. what made the difference, though, for, for each of you individually? Because you had to get to a point where you were even on a stage like that that well, I th- allowed yeah. you to excel. Yeah, I think that Barry hit it earlier. You got When I was being trained by Guido, he said, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to the, what's going on in the locker room. Be respectful and absorb, like you said. Be a sponge. And you got to practice your skills. Yeah. You know, guys, guys try things now, and we see it all the time. They try something the night of an event. Well, that's what practice is for. That's what the gym is for. Don't yeah. try something in the ring and hurt somebody before you can master it. And I think that our opponents and the guys that we were around, I think they respected our effort that we put into it. We trained, we tried to present ourselves well. Uh, we didn't backstab anybody. Uh, we didn't badmouth anybody. Both of us and I can speak for both of us on this, we let our ring ability 
put our foot forward, not our mouth, not hold somebody back, not telling stories behind somebody's back, not trying to get ahead of somebody. Yeah. We never went to the office. They'd have to call us. We figured if we do it in the ring, they'll, they'll notice it. And they did. What were those early years like? I mean, both of you uh, certainly had a number of gimmicks. But I think the ones that really stand out, you know, for Barry was uh, Crusher Khrushchev, uh, you were the mass superstar, uh, there were others. But uh, what did those years teach you to get you to the point where you were the caliber that could step on the stage in the WWF? Well, I'll tell you, when I was in the, the Charlotte Territory, Ivan Koloff was my partner back then. Yeah. And I learned so much from Ivan, you know, when you first start in a territory in the business, you learn a whole bunch of stuff and then you think, you know, everything. And then you go to another territory and all of a sudden you go, God, I was doing that. You know, you learn so much in that second territory and you go, Holy cow. I didn't even know how to work back then. And then all of a sudden you get to the next territory and it's the same thing. By the time I got to Charlotte, I could work pretty good, but it was nothing until I got with Ivan is when I really learned how to work and learn the real thing about wrestling. And then at, at that time I was very confident and we were a really good team. It was, it was kind of like Bill and us, you know, Bill and I up in the WWF, it was, Ivan was that same way. We worked really good together. We weren't selfish. So that's what got me ready for the WWF. And when I got up there, I can remember the first day I walked in and, you know, and thank God, you know, I met Bill before that and, you know, everybody knew he was going to be my partner. And I was this young guy. I was like 25 years old coming into that territory, 26 mm-hmm. years. old. I walked into the dressing room and the first guy I see is like Paul Orndorff <laughs> and then Jimmy fly snooker. Then I see Andre the giant and I see mm-hmm. Hulk Hogan and I'm like, Holy cow. Now I'm in the big leagues mm. and thank God Bill was there to help me learn that next level after being Crusher Khrushchev with Ivan Koloff. I mean, what, a, what a, you know, that was like everybody's dream was to get to the big leagues, the WWF. And, and I made it there. So it was, uh, it was, a, it was a really big thing. And, you know, a lot of people, they, if you compare it uh, to professional sports, uh, other professional sports, I should say, uh, it's like working in the minor leagues and you want to get to the big show. And yep. and that is ex- exactly what happened for you guys. And and Bill, I know that uh, early on, you know, uh, you were the, in the IWA and you mentioned uh, Guido. And I think you were your tag team partners as, as Bolo Mongo and, uh, you know, your team with him. And you're known for some of these incredible matches. You would do these one-hour cage matches, which, of course, you certainly couldn't do today. But to give people some idea of what it was like in the ring back then, that you could do these matches. And I've talked with several other superstars about this as well. It's it's a lot different as far as when you have these audiences where there's not, you know, there's not 50,000 or 60,000, even 10,000 that that's where you learn how to uh, really what it comes down to control an audience, how to bring them up, how to bring them down, how to get the heat, how to, you know, uh, you, you, you have to learn that. And yeah. I'll tell you what, uh, the best times I had in the business other than the WWF, but 
learning the craft in Georgia in the Mid Atlantic area because you're in you're in the same towns every week, so you yeah. can't do the same thing. You know, you're in New York territory. You might be in L.A. and you might not be back in L.A. for three months. You might be in Chicago. You might not be back in Chicago for three months. But you're in Atlanta every week. You're in Augusta every week. You're yeah. in Charlotte every week. You're in Fayetteville every week. So you've got to learn how to work, and you've got to expand your match, condense your match, change your match. And George Scott was instrumental. George Scott would make us, I know me, write down the finish that we used in Greenville, the mask that I wore, how was the finish received? Mm-hmm. What didn't work? What did work? And I kept the diary for about four years. And he'd say, okay, you're going back to Greenville. When was the last time you read, wore that red mask? And yeah. I could look in the book. And it was, well, it's uh, 10 shows ago. Okay. Yeah. Don't go. In the, so everything was part of your presentation. By the time I got through Charlotte and Georgia, when I got to New York, I mean, it was really easy. Of course, you know, I knew all the guys. And, right. And it was just a matter of there you could have a match. You could have a similar match all around the circuit because you were only going to be there once in that two, three months span. Yeah. But, Bill, explain to people, because if you, if you tell people, like I mentioned, you did one-hour cage matches. I think you even had 90-minute cage matches with – with people like Blackjack Mulligan, and and for them to try and grasp that, because can you imagine today having an hour and a half cage match? But with, you, with you two kept that crowd along, right? Well, here's the thing. Yeah. The first one we had, it was a culmination of a big angle with Mulligan and I. Yeah. We had gone through a series of probably 50 matches up to that point, and this was going to end in the... Uh, the whole series. Yeah. First one's Thornton Arena in Raleigh. Like Barry said, two separate dress rooms. Mulligan's over in his dress room. I'm over in mine. Yeah. Tommy Young's walking back and forth. <laughs> and Tommy's a nervous wreck. He said, you got to go on pretty soon. Yeah. I said, yeah, Tommy, what's the finish? So he said, I got to go find out. <laughs> Come back a little bit later and he says, you're going an hour. I said, quit ribbing me. Nobody had gone an hour. Uh-huh. And we went 12 hours over the time frame. Wow. One of the houses kept going up. I thought George was nuts, and so did Mulligan almost punched George out because <laughs> he thought he was brilliant. But the houses kept going up, and George says, we're coming back in a 90-minute cage match wow. with two referees. So we did it, and the houses kept going up. Now, how do you hold an audience? Is that I'm trying. I want people to understand because today, with the attention span in the ring, if they're not doing these high spots, flying off, exactly. Uh, you, how you, did you hold an audience? You've okay. got to, you've got to get a situation where you know Mulligan had the claw. Yeah. So he's attempting to get the claw on me, and I finally. Evaded and evaded, evaded, 
And then finally, maybe 15, 20 minutes into it, he slaps that claw and the people think it's done. And, you know, I'll, I'll pull him and pull him back into the, the uh, ropes inside the cage and the ref will, meet, will make him break it. Well, they're hoping, come on, get it back, get it back. And then I had the Cobra at that time, same thing. I try to get it on him. I try to get it on him. Pretty soon you got 59 minutes, 60 minutes, and the bell's ringing, and the people are, they aren't happy because nothing happened. So then they come back with a uh, 90 minutes. And then we we were going to come in with no time limits. Yeah. And George Scott was a uh, special referee. This was in the summer in the South, and Mulligan had gone from about 350 pounds to about 300 pounds. And I had gone down from about 315 to about 275. So you're in good shape. Yeah, but I was exhausted. You know, we were... <laughs> and I, I I was praying that we weren't going to do the no time limit. Right. But it, it served a purpose because George had this in mind. Mm-hmm. I was going to lose, which I did, I was going to leave and go to Georgia, which I did. I'm supposed to be there six weeks, and a bunch of guys come in and they jump all over Mulligan and hurt him. Mm-hmm. He called. He says, "I don't like this guy. We've got unfinished business, but I respect him. Would you be my partner?" We came back in and we set the place on fire. Wow. There was no no nothing settled between Mulligan and I, so there was always that. Well, what if they turn on each other? Yeah. So there was a story there. They don't yeah. tell stories. You could, I was going to say, you could tell stories back then. Good Lord. Uh, the next week they got another, they got the greatest pay-per-view. And then next month they got the greatest pay-per-view. And yeah. the next month they got yeah. the even greater pay-per-view. Yeah. Well, they're not all good. Well, and also we didn't have the internet back then. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have everything where you could know everything. You had to wait. And it was like Christmas by the time you got these two guys in a ring together that had been, you know, this feud. Yeah. So, Sean, now I, I got to try to up what Bill is talking about with the, all these broadways he was doing. Yeah. I, 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 got a good, I got a good one here. Me and Ivan Koloff against the Rock and Roll Express. Yeah. We, we wrestled almost an hour on TV in the morning on WTBS. Then we went to, I think it was Augusta, Georgia, in the afternoon, wrestled an hour Broadway there. <laughs> then that night, we were in the Omni and wrestled an hour Broadway there, three hour Broadways in one day. Wow. So, I mean, how were you able, like I said, that's that's the thing I, I people don't really understand, that you, that the psychology in that ring, it wasn't so much what the action was going on. It was the, it was the drama of it. You could have an arm bar and hold that, you know, for 10 minutes, it seemed like sometimes, but, but they had the audience and, and, you know, back then you were, it was, it was that connection. I get, I don't know what, how else you explain it, but that psychology is not there today. And that's, I, I don't know. Yeah, I I had a guy that was called Ivan Koloff. Yeah, he was he was a machine, and all three of us just followed Ivan, and it was unbelievable. I I never ever thought that I would ever go an hour match, yeah. and 
it was, it was nonstop hour too. It wasn't just, uh, you know, laying down for 15 minutes and doing stuff. You got a hold and you fought out of it and then you did something. And it was, uh, that, that's where I really learned. And that was how I learned the craft to get up to the WWF at the time. Yeah. was because of that. And the yeah, rock and roll is phenomenal, you know? Yeah. Well, and when you arrived, it, uh, is, a, is amazing what happened. Uh, before we get there, and folks, uh, we are. Uh, this is a special edition of Primetime with Sean Mooney because we have Axe and Smash of Demolition uh, in a car right now, <laughs> traveling to a show outside of Chicago, and uh, they're sharing some of the the treasures of uh, of memories that they have from their uh, their rise to the WWF. Uh, before we get to that arrival, I I did want to ask Bill. That uh, I know that uh, Andre was a very close friend of yours, Bill, and uh, that you know, and of course we remember Andre the Giant being slammed by uh, Hulk Hogan. Uh, the t- torch was passed at WrestleMania, but uh, uh, Hulk Hogan was not the first to slam Andre the Giant, if I am correct. No, he wasn't. I I, I don't know. A lot of people give me credit, but I think Don, Don Leo Jonathan was actually the first. But I I thought it was a rip. He, you know, Andre and I got along real well. And you weren't going to do anything to Andre that he didn't want you to do. Yeah, exactly. No kidding. We're in the middle of the match, and he said, slam me. <laughs> and I heard, what? He said, slam me. And this is when he was over 500 pounds. Wow. And slammed him, but, you know. I, I think Don Leo was actually the first. Of course, Hogan probably takes credit for being the first, but he didn't give that honor to many people, though. No. no, I was going to say, how many are in that club? It ca- it cannot be many. I don't, I don't, I don't really know how many, to be honest with you. Yeah, but I don't think I, it's, it's I, very many. And and uh, like you said, Andre never did anything that he didn't want to do, or if it wasn't somebody that he respected or was. Uh, really wanted to help put over and that uh, that's a great honor i mean I, I and i know you were very close to him it's it's well, kind you, of poignant at the you, time because that that uh, documentary just came out and i know that you were close to him sorry but we're in a new building in the carolinas and every time andre came in he wanted to work with me which made me happy because i knew that it was going to be good paydays and i was going to have good matches and he was going to, you know, make me look good too. Yeah. We go into the, the first opening night of Greenwood, South Carolina, brand new Coliseum. All the big wigs are there. The whole Crockett's are there. George Scott's there, you know, and we're in dressing room there again, different dressing rooms. And, uh, Jimmy Crockett come over and he says, you know that Andre doesn't like to go that long, Bill. And he said, whatever you do, make sure you go at least 10 or 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I didn't say anything. And we're in a tag match. And it was me and Mulligan against Andre and Igor. Well, Andre didn't like Igor. Matter of fact, he didn't let Igor in the ring at all. <laughs> so we're in the match and it's sold out completely yeah. jam packed and about five minutes into you know uh, Eagle, uh, Eagle was on, on, on the side trying to get in 
Andre stayed in. Me and Mulligan worked back and forth. And Andre, I'm in there with him. And Andre said, let's go home, boss. And I'm thinking. How many minutes? How many minutes are you in? About five minutes. (laughs) Okay. But I said, we can't go home. He said, let's go home, boss. I said, okay. What am I going to do with it, right? Yeah. I don't want a giant at me. Right. So we, we did the finish, whatever it was, DQ or whatever. We go back to the dress room. Andre goes to his dress room. He goes saunders off to somewhere. And uh, Mulligan and I are in the dress room. And Jimmy Crockett comes in and he's cussing this and that and that. And blah, blah. I told you, blah, blah, blah. I said, Jimmy, there's a real big guy. You can't miss it in the other dress room. You tell him what you're telling me. <laughs> and that was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't imagine that he went over to that other dressing room. No, he never went over there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The boss, there was the, he called everybody boss, but we know who the boss really was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I, how did that relationship really, how did that develop with over the years just from uh, working together or what was the connection that really uh, connected you and Andre? Well, the first match I had with him there again, I think it was, I think it was Greensboro. Yeah. And, you know, Andre liked to drink a little bit. And one of his requirements in the dress room was to have multiple bottles of whatever he was drinking at yeah. that time. When I first met him, he was drinking cognac. So he had to have 12 bottles of cognac in the dressing room. And he played and drink the cognac. Of course, I didn't know because we're in different dressing rooms. Yeah. He comes in the ring, and this is the first time I met him. I'm in the ring, and his music's playing, and there's this colossal guy walking down the aisle, and I'm thinking to myself, what the hell did I get myself into? Yeah. And he stepped the ring and he comes up to him. I'm about up to his chest. Yeah. Well, I didn't know he was a little tipsy. Well, we do a little thing four or five minutes into the thing and he's going to slam me, but he stumbled. He was staggering and he couldn't push me over. He was losing his balance. So I put my hand on his shoulder and pushed myself up into the press position. And he looked up and he said, Thank you, boss. And that was it. After <laughs> that, in. every time he came in, I worked with him. Every time. Wow. Well, he, knows, he knew you were going to look after him. Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't going to make fun of him. And You know, it was my, my opportunity to make extra money because you're working with Andre. You're in the main event, you know. Yeah. So in the meantime, I mean, you guys are are working uh, all over the place. I know that uh, Barry uh, spent a lot of time and and you know as a Crusher crew chef at uh, uh, with the IWA and beyond that, you had a lot of successful years with with Jim Crockett in the NBA, NWA. Uh, Barry, during that run, uh, did you see like where that was going? I don't know. You know, tag team competition was kind of something that everybody kind of filled in here and there. Was was that even on your radar when, when things came up? Because I know in 87, when you left there, then a, a, a tremendous opportunity came your way. Yeah, um, when I 
when I left uh, Crockett's territory, I I was on the road for so long, and right. you know, I mean, we we wrestled every day, weekends twice a day, double shots. It was I was pretty wore out. So when I when I left, I just wanted to get some time off. But in the meantime, I talked to uh, Earl Hebner, and he talked to Dave Hebner, and I told him I said I really want to get into the WWF. Yeah, so it's a place to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe in a year or so I can get there and, you know, train and get myself in shape, you know, better shape. And then Ricky Steamboat called me up and he says, hey, Barry, he says, I'm going to, I talked to Hebner, I'm going to go talk to uh, Vince for you and see if we can get you up here. So about two weeks later, all of a sudden I get a call at home and it's Vince. And he says, yeah, Barry, uh, Vince McMahon, you know, and I, I was like, holy shit, Vince is calling me. Yeah. And, uh, so we start talking everything and Vince says, yeah, I'd like you to come up to the office and, uh, I'd like to meet you and talk to you about a little uh, gimmick that I, I got going up here. And I said, well, Vince, I'm pretty busy. I don't know if I can get up there. And then he kind of <laughs> laughed. And I said, when do you want me? I'll, you know, I can leave right now, you know? Yeah. Right. So anyways, I, I, uh, I end up uh, going up to Connecticut, and a limo picks me up and get up there. And then I met with Pat and, you know, a few other people. And then uh, Vince comes in the room, and he had me sign this little contract saying I couldn't talk about what it, what it was. Right. And he said, how do you feel about being partners with uh, Bill Eadie? Uh-huh. I would love to be partners with Bill Eadie. And Had you guys said, been around each other much before then? Not a lot, but I, I've met I'm you knew, Bill and his knew of him, yeah. And then I just knew a lot of people that I worked with who worked with Bill and you know, we knew all the same people, but we were in different territories. Yeah. So, well Bill, one, this you had this uh Bill had this I don't know how demolition came together, but obviously it was a it was a, a great Idea that had been formed, and of course, you know they had the the road warriors were out there, and and uh, these these you know powerful tag teams were very popular at the time. Uh, We should tell everybody if they don't know the history of it that uh, you know Bill came to the WWF along with uh, Randy Colley, and uh, who was formerly Moondog Rex, Moondog Rex, as everybody knew him, and he was the original Smash, uh, but apparently. Uh, people knew him too well, I guess, from his his previous gimmick. Yeah, and they were this, right. this opened a door for you. So maybe Bill, you could you know kind of fill that in, or or Barry. Well, they recognized Randy right away. He was their previous champion. Right. He was there for a number of years, and uh, I was going back and forth to Japan at the time. And the first night that uh, Randy and I, I don't remember if it was. Allentown or the Meadowlands, one of the two, where we did two television uh, appearances. And both times, the, the fans didn't know me because they had no reference point. I was a, in there previously as a mass superstar, but they right. they recognized Randy. Yeah. And it, I, I told Vince, I said, it's, it's a hell of a gimmick. It's going to get over, but it's not going to get over with Randy, unfortunately. So if you want to do it, I'll go back. But how did how did you come up with did you were you part of that uh did you come up with the idea of demolition and and uh how how it would you know what would gimmick well, would be comprised Randy of up, Randy had come up with 
a number of ideas. One of them was uh, a lot of fur on the boots and a yeah. The movie, the Mad Max. Right, right. So we, That's exactly. But I don't think it's. It looked kind of clowny. It was like uh, Berserker's boots, you know, the uh, those furry boots and stuff oh, yeah, like I that. Those. <laughs> furry jacket. They worked for him. <laughs> they worked for him, but they weren't going to work yeah, for this character. For, yeah, right. Many different things. Yeah. So we tweaked it. We tweaked it, and then I had already committed to go back to Japan. And I think Barry and I, we met up in Charlotte, right? Atlanta. Atlanta. Atlanta? And okay. uh, I, I, like Barry said, we knew a lot of people that over the years, but we had never been in time. And uh, Vince had suggested a number of other people, but it was going to be the same thing. Right. You know, the four or five people as he, he suggested were all well-known, established people. And I said, you got to bring in somebody different. Yeah. And I, I met with Barry and I said, you know, fine with me if you want to do it. And it was fine with me if you don't want to do it, Vince, because I was going back to Japan. He said, well, you can't go back. I said, I gave him my word I'm going back. If I gave you my word I was coming in, you just expect me to be here. So yeah. that's when Barry had gone up. So I let Barry finish up. So then, um, so then, uh, Vince came in and he had about five or six different drawings of what the character was going to look like. So I was looking at it. I'm, you know, here I grew up with the road warriors and I knew how successful they were, but they were in that same territory where I used to be. Right. And so that wasn't the big leagues. When, when you were there, you thought it was the big leagues, but then when you got to, you know, the WWF at that time, now it was like, holy cow. So the gimmick was kind of the same, but wasn't the same. And I knew being partners with, you know, after being partners with Ivan, I really learned how to work. I could wrestle. I could get on the mats. I could, I could do, you know, have a match with anybody. And I knew Bill was like that because after watching him as the mass superstar, I knew that the way he worked and the way I worked, it was going to be a real team. And I was so excited. I told Vince, I said, count on me for this. If, if Bill wants me for a partner, I would love to be this. Yeah. And he didn't tell me what the name of the gimmick was at that time. Uh-huh. And I, I told Vince, I, you know, I said, so when, when do you plan on starting this? And Vince says, well, you know, when do you want to start? And I said, I got to have a break. I said, I've only had a month off. I say, I need to get my mind right and start training. He says, well, why don't we, uh, why don't I sign you to a contract and we'll start in about uh, three, four months. Uh So then uh, I met, met Bill at a TV and we talked and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And, you know, it just, we hit it off just great. And I knew the gimmick was going to be good and it ended up being really good yeah i mean unbelievable actually and at what point like you you said you guys no but you guys uh you know all the uh ingredients were there but we've seen that happen before where we've seen people get into a ring and they everything is you know it's supposed to work and it doesn't at what point after you guys had started working together because of course you just you 
the first, just to be in the WWF at that time was where you exactly wanted to be. And you would have probably said any gimmick I, I'm in because you want that chance. But at what point did you guys realize we got magic here? There is, there is definitely something happening. Well, when, when we first were, did our first TV, Johnny Valiant was our manager right. and he was a great guy. I mean, you know, just, he was really a good guy, but he just didn't fit what Axe and Smash were. Yeah. So we, we ended up, you know, talking to Vince and we, we wanted a different manager and that's when Fuji became our manager and. You know, it was nothing against Johnny V or anything, but it was just a, a totally different, you know, gimmick with him in there. And when Fuji came in, all of a sudden, we were the tough guys with Fuji because Fuji, nobody knew what Fuji was going to do. He was he was vicious and he was yeah. mean, and he was so that kind of really made us feel like when when we wrestled, we were really axe and smash the demolition. There was there was no acting there, yeah. and that's that's when I knew that we were going to go a long ways was because it was it was the real thing. And the way Bill could wrestle and the way I could wrestle, it just complemented each other. And we weren't greedy. We didn't want, you know, one person didn't have to win or, you know, we didn't care who got beat or whatever because it was a real team. And with Fuji being the manager, he could critique all the stuff we were doing. You know, and tell us, you know, hey, don't do this, do that. He was like a real shoot manager. Uh-huh. So it just worked out great. And that's that's when it was. That, that's when we knew it was really going to be the real thing. But the only, the other side of this, too, guys, is, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll, they'll uh, bring in a manager because the two characters or the character, if it's a singles, you know, can't really carry the, the promo side of it, which was tremendously important at that time. But I'm telling, like you guys were among the best, and and I'll tell you, like 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 Bill's voice with that, you know, you coming in was as distinct to me as Hawks, and 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 your follow up to stuff. I mean, with the combination bear like that you guys had was really a, as strong as any others that we had in the in the WWF. And you mentioned that you know Fuji certainly played a big role on that, but how important did you guys see that side of it? That that because the personality side and being able to do those cut those promos were just and I don't know if they have that same significance today, but back then, man, it was it was a huge part of what got you over. Well, I, I agree, and, and Barry and I used to pride ourselves in the fact that we knew what we were where we were going to be, who our opponents were going to be, and we had to stay within our character. Uh, we're not going to tiptoe and dance and this and that. We're going out. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We were mm-hmm. a little vague sometimes. And I learned a very important lesson from from Wahoo McDaniel. Wahoo, as you know, and the fans probably know, yeah. was a well-established babyface. And he always said, if you're a heel, you can get away with a lot more. You can be us once in a while. Yeah. But if you're if you're a babyface and you promise the people something, you better do it or you're going to lose face. So I we we prided ourselves in the fact that we would study, you know, not hours and hours, but we knew who we were going to go against. 
we knew our history with the guys. Uh, we knew what was going to take place. And we knew that we had to be in character. And we took pride in one take uh, promos. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I remember them distinctly. And that's an, and another thing is that they weren't scripted. You guys had an idea of where you were going. But that's why I really think it was gold. I looked at a few guys. I have to tell you, I looked at a few uh, over the past week. And uh, really, I'm not kidding. And I, I still remember vividly. There were, there were those that, um, you know, that I thought were good. But top five and, and, and singles and tag teams, you guys were there. I'm, I'm not kidding. Because uh, that is an art. And, it, and I don't know if it's a lost art today. Maybe they just don't give them the chance. But it really was. But, you know, you know, Sean, too, it, it wasn't just the wrestlers, you know, like, like when I was talking about, you know, getting up to the WWF, it was the greatest thing ever. It yeah. wasn't just the wrestlers that were pros. It was you guys, you know, you and Gene Okerlund and, you know, the referees. Everybody was at the top of their games. And, and to make the interviews good, you know, it, it took you guys asking us the right questions, doing the right things to lead us into all that stuff too. So it wasn't so much a part of it though. I like that. I really believe that that's, they've lost a lot of that today. They certainly do all a lot of this backstage stuff and, you know, but those those promos. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a lost art. Yeah. No, it really is. And I talk to people too. They ask me all the time, did they tell those guys what to say? Did they, you know, and and that's the thing about these these uh, these characters. Now, certainly, the WWF created uh, gimmicks for these guys, or whatever, and said this is what it is. But it was really up to that individual, to those individuals, to create that character, and they lived it, and they were able to you know to really express it. There wasn't some writer out in the hallway saying, "Okay, this is what we're doing with you guys now. Here's what we'd right. like you to say." You you would go in there. And say, all right, go. And you knew the storyline. And, I mean, if you – that's why I think that uh, that kids and, and the people that were enthralled with that era, you know, they they bought every bit of it. Right. Well, it was kind of like when we were in the dressing room, and the yeah. minute you put the paint on and the steel spikes and all that, we actually became those two guys. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what I think made it so easy for us. It was – we were really those guys when we put that on. Yeah, exactly. So uh, moving along here, and and it did it, it propelled you guys into the you know the top of of uh, of the the talent in the WWF. And when you won that the tag team championship in 1988, uh, really, as far as professional athletes, as as far as professional entertainment athletes. You know, to to reach that point, uh, were you able to look around and say, "Yeah, you know, we've we've reached this pinnacle, that we've reached this point in our careers that many never even get close to even come, you know, getting a chance to do it." Well, I'll I'll be honest with you, Sean. It's it when you're in the forest, you don't see the trees. Yeah, we were too, we were too busy having matches and traveling and going from town to town. Yeah. And really, it wasn't until after, you know, we do these signings and we're still well-known 
and we haven't been there for over 20 years. But at the so, time, do you remember, though, just how huge it was? Because I, I remember, uh, you know, being at some of those pay-per-views and just looking around like, well, my God, what this this is as big as any other, you know, uh, the, the peak of entertainment. There was you know, where else you have, you know, 80,000 people and it's covered by, you know, every mainstream uh, sports outlet. You know, it, 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 did, did you look around and say, Mike, wow, what this business has become? Well, you know, I was amazed that that we were given the opportunity, but yeah. I think we also realized that we earned it. They're not gonna they're not gonna have you in the main events and representing the company as the champions if you can't carry it. Yeah. So you know that 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 portion of it, we were both confident that we could handle it. But I don't. I'm being honest. I don't know that uh, uh, we could honestly, or I could honestly say, I thought it was going to be as big as it is, and it's yeah. even bigger than me. You know. Yeah. I wish. But I back could, then, I, it was exploding. I mean, uh, Barry, did you feel the same way? Was you were you just like, you know, not, you know, just kind of keep your head down and say, and it's all happening. You got to right. get up every day, and you got to find a gym, and you got to get to these house shows, and you show up to yeah. TV tapings every three weeks. You know. Yeah, you're busy working, but you know, yeah. if it, it would have been nice to have that for, uh, that foresight, and I could have picked up a couple uh, winning lottery tickets, maybe too. <laughs> yeah, we'd all would have liked that as well. But was was it? It uh, it was some ride though, and when you when you look at back uh, being uh, three time tag team champions uh that that's that's unbelievable and, well, and yeah. really one of the most popular tag teams ever and at that time well thank you it, it, it's still a good ride i mean we mm. we still get two bookings a month we could probably have more yeah. but you know i teach and barry's got his own business and if we were working five days a week which we do and then every weekend it's like being on a road again so uh but you know we now we have an opportunity to sit and chat with the fans and, and they all have fond memories that remind us that hey that was pretty good are the events or or matches that really stand out to you guys when you look back well we were fortunate you know we've been asked and i know i've been asking barry as well uh, favorite matches, favorite opponents. Right. If we listed 15, we'd leave out 15. Right, exactly. <laughs> we were just happy and fortunate that we were in an era that there weren't very many bad wrestlers in the territory. Mm -hmm. There were a few, but most of the guys were main event quality. So you, if you get in the ring and the bell rings and you have a good referee and a good announcer four guys work, you're going to have a decent match. Yeah. So when it, when it started to wind down, uh, after that period, and I, I know that you had some health issues at the time, Bill, but, uh, what was it? I mean, what happened that, uh, a lot of people don't understand, you know, why it didn't go on for five or six, seven years. Well, we wonder that too, the setup was, you know, 
you know, and the fans might not know, I went for 12 years yeah. back and forth to Japan, anywhere from 10 to 14 weeks a year. Mm-hmm. And loved sushi and crab, and, uh, and I built up a toxic level of iodine in my system. And one piece of shrimp went over the limit, and I had an anaphylactic reaction. Well, the office panicked. That's when they brought in Crush. And, uh, you know, they could have postponed a little bit. Could have given Barry some time off. And in six weeks, I was back. But they had already panicked. And I don't know what happened. But, you know, Barry and I both did this. They they just didn't know what to do. Which Mm -hmm. sometimes know what to do with a lot of guys it's not only us so they make decisions the head coach makes a decision and he's he made a mistake but he's not going to retract that decision All right so that's how that's how it happened yeah so they bring in brian adams and you know it's just it and, and no no uh, fault to brian adams when i say this but it was never the same again there was this this lightning with you guys that, uh, you know, you felt it every time you two stepped in, into the arena together, that uh, it, it really wasn't. And, and uh, did you guys feel that way at the time that, uh, you know, damn it, you know, this could have been even better? Or was it, okay, we had our time? Well, I, I think that both Barry and I, and you're absolutely right, when they, people think of, Demolition, they think of Axe and Smash. Yeah, absolutely. Don't think of Crush. Yeah. And, and Crush was actually put in a rather tenuous situation. He wasn't yeah. as polished. His interviews weren't as good. Yeah. He knew that we did one-cut interviews and we're out. And he would make a mistake. And all of a sudden, he's making a second mistake. And then he's self-conscious and he's making a third mistake. Yeah. And didn't know the little nuances that, that that Barry and I had developed over the years. He was put in the situation that he was bound to fail at. And I think he was aware of that fact. I, I wish that it would have been different. We could have lasted a lot longer. They turned his heel way too fast. Yeah. They thought they had a remedy for it. It didn't work. But, you know, we had a good time. We made money, and there's no hard feelings. Yeah. And, and you, I don't know, I, I know that you, they say you stepped into a managerial role there for a while. You were uh, kind of behind the scenes. Uh, but, you know, Barry, did, what was going on in your mind at the time when you kind of saw this dissolving? You know, it, uh, it, it was really tough because, you know, your, your whole life is wrestling and yeah. you get to but the also you of, knew what you had there, you know, with, with Bill. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, but you know, it was just an unfortunate thing that happened. You yeah. know, Bill got sick yeah. and I mean, there was nothing anybody could do and it just, uh, it just happened. And, you know, Brian was the greatest guy in the world. He was a lot of fun. Good guy. Yeah. Tried yeah, his absolutely. You, you just can't replace Bill. You know, that was, you know, he was the heart of the team. You know, I, I followed his lead and without him, 
you know, I was leading and it wasn't the same, you know, it just, it, it was a tough situation. It was, uh, it was hard, but you know, you got to go on with life and, you know, keep going. Yeah. Well, and and you certainly did, and I and and uh, I certainly love the Repo Man. I remember having a lot yeah. of uh, great, uh, a lot of fun with you uh, during yeah, that I, time. But it was, well, but it was, you know, and it was a good gimmick. I mean, did you enjoy that uh, as a singles? I I actually I really loved that gimmick. Did it? But well, you it, came it, up it, with it, right? Was it kind of a? Uh, it was like yeah, the I, uh, Lone Ranger uh, and the Riddler kind of combination yeah. right i came up with it to be uh, end up being a baby face yeah. and I, I i wanted to do it for about three or four years and then i wanted to kind of get out of wrestling and i wanted to really uh do things for make a wish and do all that kind of stuff and it just yeah. they never turned me baby face never wanted to and it just kind of it fizzled and then that was the end of it and then i, I put it in my notice and i left yeah and uh you know, I, I really, really was going to enjoy going out and doing other things than being in the wrestling part of it. Yeah. But it just never happened. So then that's why I went to WCW. Right. And uh, had, but was that an enjoyable experience? Because I'm trying to find somebody who really did enjoy that that time there. WCW? <laughs> yeah. That, that was like, I mean, it was stealing money. It wasn't even... You know, I, I was so used to working hard, and it's just like right now in my life. I, I work hard. Yeah. And I work hard for my money. And when, when we were the demolition, we worked really hard for our money. When we went down there, it was like you didn't even have to work, and you got paid. And I think they almost got mad at you if you did work hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It was the strange. It was the end of my wrestling career. I hated wrestling. I didn't even want to even be involved with it anymore. Yeah. That's how bad but they're throwing money at you. What are you going to do, right? Yeah, I mean, shoot, you get. I, I worked three days, four days a month, and I got paid big money. And it was like, how can this be? That's why the territory's not there anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, uh, I don't know. Yeah, what? Well, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but uh, you know, folks will always remember, and they and, and whatever the span of time that was. You guys really were uh, one of the most popular tag teams ever. And uh, really, I, I vividly, when I recall that period of time, and, you know, it was, it was such a great period of time for tag teams. But, uh, you know, you, you really, if you think of tag teams really that stand out like that, uh, you know, top five, you know, with the Road Warriors and the Hart Foundation, maybe, and, and you guys. I mean, there's just... There's few that really stand out like that, and you guys really have to be proud of that. You know, and and I know Bill is, and I am too. We are really proud of that. And mm-hmm. what was so great about that time is there were so many tag teams that were so good. Anybody could have been yeah. in the position holding the belts at the time, yeah. and it just happened to be us. We were picked to be the guys, and 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 I think one of the reasons why was because we could have matches with every single team. It didn't mm-hmm. matter if it was, you know, the Bulldogs, the Bushwhackers, uh, whoever it was, we just kind of made the match to be the best match, not just to be the best two guys out there. You know, and I think yeah. that's what the whole thing was all about. So, 
you know, it's, it's fun now. You go to all the conventions and you do all this stuff and, you know, all the fans are asking, you know, when are you going to get into the Hall of Fame, you know, and all this stuff. And, you know, who knows? You, you know, we may never, ever, because there are so many tag teams out there. And I know, I think, but, but it's also on your part, too, uh, Barry. I mean, and, and uh, Bill as well, that uh, you guys deserve to be in there. I know they've approached you. Uh, what would it take to accept that, that honor? Right now... You know, Bill and I were kind of laughing about it. Not too long. Yeah. When we were done at WrestleMania, and that's when I saw you at the WrestleCon. Yeah. We were kind of laughing, and we just thought, you know, if they asked us to go in, what what would we really do now? You know, it's been, what, 20 years since we've been around the business, and yeah. the guys the guys make, what, five six $6,000, Bill, the time when they when they go to the Hall of Fame? Supposedly. Yeah, so <laughs> we were kind of laughing for that. I thought. You know, I think it would take probably a hundred thousand dollars at least to bring us in for the Hall of Fame, and I thought, what a good number because you know, I, it's like my mother-in-law; she's the greatest woman of all time, and she has a church in Belmont, Mount Holly, in North Carolina, and I'd, mm-hmm. I'd give like ten thousand of that to her church, and then I take another ten thousand of that hundred thousand, and I give it to my son. He's a, a deputy in the sheriff's department for the canine unit. And then I'd probably give some more money. You know, I'm thinking of all these different charity charities. Yeah. I'd give my partner 10,000, you know, but <laughs> yeah, the driver, but, but you know what I mean? It would, uh, I would have to say it'd probably be a hundred thousand dollars to even get us to go there. Yeah. And well, and I, you, like you said, you probably give it all away, but uh, as far you know, that the, the, the fans out there, uh, really want to see you in. Yeah, it, it'd be nice. Well, you know, it, it's nice because, uh, like when we saw you at Russell, uh, Russell con, a lot of, a lot of the people come up and say the same thing. Yeah. And we appreciate their loyalty and them being fans of ours. And just remembering that we were in the business and remembering, uh, things that, made an imprint on their life. So yeah. it, it would be a nice footnote, but, you know, Barry and I have both said a number of times, we have no control over it. Uh, if we get in, great. If we don't get in, we're not going to lose sleep over it. No. So uh, that's where we stand. Yeah. But doesn't it amaze you when you go to these shows, and I know you guys get out there uh, here and there, uh, of just how appreciative, uh, just how incredible these people who, and a lot of them were kids during that time and, and you run into them and they, you know, they come up to you and say to you, you have no idea, you know, how you helped me through a tough time in my life. Or, you know, there was just something I look forward to every week. And, uh, is that enough? <laughs> When you, when you hear, when, when you know what, what impact you had on these people's lives. Well, you know, what's nice is adults that come up, they were watching us when they were young and they'll bring their kids and say, now these are the guys I used to look up to. Yeah. That's nice. How about for you, Barry? You know, it's, 
the fans are the greatest people in the world. Those are the ones that made all of us, made you, made us, made yeah. you know, the Hart Foundation. And when you get to see these people and these kids, and they're watching that 24-7, it's like the kids are fans just like their parents were now. Yeah. And it's it's pretty exciting when they, they say, I can't. It was unbelievable when you, you know, hit that guy over the head with the chair or this, you know, they know everything yeah. that you've ever done or anything that's done to you. Yeah. So it's, but we're the luckiest guys in the world, Sean, I'm telling you. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you both look great. Uh, I, I, folks, I saw him at WrestleCon when we were in New Orleans. And uh, uh, Bill, uh, uh, could you tell, get us up to date what your life is about now, what you're doing, and then also you too, Barry. Yeah, I, uh, well, this is Barry. I, uh, I own a, a printing company in Minnesota. We uh, print on hard hats and safety vests and all that. It's, uh, it's been uh, 13 years we've had the business, and it's, it's doing very well. Like I say, I'm, I'm like the luckiest guy in the world. I got a great wife. My son's unbelievable. I got grandkids, and, you know, I, I'm riding in the car with these guys here, and, it's, <laughs> you know, it's it's just like the old days. We're we're on the road. In fact, we're almost to the town. We're at the exit. So <laughs> all right, good timing. John, it was it was it was great seeing you too. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's uh, we're pretty lucky. Yeah, but uh, and Bill, I know you've been an educator and a coach. Well, I got into coaching before wrestling, and then got into wrestling, and after I got out, I went back. Uh, got recertified and and I, I work with, uh, kids at risk, uh, psychiatric hospital setting for, uh, sexually abused kids. And I'm, I'm setting myself up to retire this year. And how many events you guys, uh, hit every, uh, every year now you guys get together. uh, uh, We try to to limit Two per month. Well, I would say maybe 20, yeah. 20 events. That's awesome. Yeah. And so where can people, I know you were at, at this event com, event coming up, but where else can they see you, say, in the next couple of months? Well, we're going to be in, in Canada for three days in May. We're in uh, New, D- Jersey. New Jersey in June for the, uh, I think it's the ring uh Ring of Honor, no, Legends Ring or something. The promoter will kill me for not knowing it. But, <laughs> uh, and then we're doing a, an event in uh, Maryland. Yeah. And uh, we, you know we're, we're going to be comedians in one show. Yeah, we're doing a we're doing a question and answer. Oh, are you uh, doing a live show? Legends of comedy for. <laughs> an event i don't know how we told him that uh the people will laugh and we guarantee they will laugh oh yeah you guys were that's another thing folks you didn't realize these guys were very very amusing back in the day they kept me uh <laughs> laughing quite a bit when, when is that show when it where is that where and when is that taking place that's in uh forgive me it's in may i think it's the 20 21st of may now, is, is there a uh, is there a website or something they can they can catch up to you guys and find out what you know, what you're up to? Very because that Twitter and that tweet and all this stuff, and yeah. I don't do all that stuff. So <laughs> you, you just show up. 
<laughs> Sean, I, I don't have a clue on half the stuff I do either. Right, I'm going to do my homework on that. And I, when I do my, uh, the pitch at the end of this thing, I will make sure that I tell folks how they can uh, keep up with these two very uh, super, these two, I'm not going to say former, I'm going to say these two superstars who are still out there doing a lot. Uh, Bill Eady, uh, Barry Darso, thank you so much, guys. It's been awesome. Sure. Folks, we've been on the road with them for the last uh, hour and, and plus. And uh, this is a very unique podcast. I'm going to remember it for a long time. You guys were two of my favorites, and you remain favorites. You know, no, really, we haven't left the airport yet. We've been driving around the airport. <laughs> You're like a plane. You're circling. <laughs> uh, but, Sean, thank you. It was great seeing you again, too. Yeah, and I, I will see you down the road. I'm, I'm getting out to a few of the things down then, so uh, I will see you guys. But it was great catching up. Thanks a lot. You take care.